If you haven't already, I'd ask that you would take God's word into your hands and turn to the book of 1 Kings this morning. To the book of 1 Kings. We're in a study uh, that we have entitled Elijah, a man like us. And uh, for the last couple of weeks, we have been exploring uh, the life of the prophet from the Old Testament, Elijah, and the uh, life that he lived and the world that he lived in. And we're learning that uh, while he did extraordinary things, he was very much just like you and I, an, an ordinary guy. And today we're going to talk about what it means to be out of the frying pan and into the fire. Because last week where we left off with our friend Elijah was that he was at uh, the ravine Kareth. He had been asked by God, he had been commanded by God uh, to go to Ahab the king and to speak against him and the sins of Israel by telling them that as a result of their sins that God would bring forth a famine And that famine had come, and Elijah was called to leave Israel and to head out to the Kareth Ravine where God would supernaturally feed him and take care of him. It would be a year of solitude and a year of uh, him being cut down and cut off. That's what that word Kareth means, to be cut off and to be cut down to size. God is doing a work in our friend Elijah, and we learn that not only is he doing that in the life of Elijah, but he's doing that in our life as well today. But we're going to learn today that that stage of cutting down and, and cutting off uh, wasn't a one-stage process because Elijah's going to go from the frying pan into the fire. If he thought things were bad at the river Gareth, then he is really going to be brought to an understanding because where he's going to go is even worse We're going to learn that he goes from the cutting place, Kareth, to Zarephath, which means the melting place. That doesn't sound like a good place to go, to go from the cutting place to the melting place. So what is God doing here? Why is God continuing to bring trials into the life of his prophet? Up to this point, Elijah has obeyed. And so why would God continue to bring hardships and troubles into this prophet's life? I like what A.W. Tozer says about why God does this. In his book, The Pursuit of God, he articulates this. It is doubtful that God can use a man greatly. It is doubtful that God can use a man greatly until he hurts him deeply. God cannot use, he says, a man or a woman to do great things unless he cuts them down to size. For some of us, we're feeling that cutting. We're feeling that melting taking place. I found this poem, and I I think it's uh, very appropriate for uh, our message today. And uh, just listen as, as I read this. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest parts, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man, that all the world shall be amazed. Watch God's methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying, and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks, When his good God undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and which every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out, 
God only knows what he's all about. God is in the process of bringing his people low so that they may glorify him. The reason why Elijah is brought into these trials is not a trial of disobedience. Elijah has not disobeyed. He's done what God has told him to. And for many of us today, we have done what God has called us to. We're not perfect, but, but God has called us to obey. And it seems every time we obey, we find ourselves falling deeper and deeper into trials and tribulation. And that's what Elijah is going to do. In fact, there's three stages to this process because he thought it was bad at Kareth. It only gets worse in Zarephath, and it doesn't even get as bad as it could be uh, in our passage today. But next week we'll learn that it gets about as bad as it can get uh, for our prophet friend. And so what God wants us to learn from Elijah's life today is that sometimes he has to break us down. Sometimes he has to melt us. The story is told of Oliver Cromwell, and it illustrates why God uses such means. At a time, England was running out of silver for making coins. So Cromwell sent his men to the cathedrals to see if they could find any silver there. They came back and reported, the only silver we can find, Mr. Cromwell, is in the statues of the saints standing in the corners. To which the crusty old statesman replied, good, we'll melt down the saints and put them into circulation. How apropos... Here are these saints in these wonderful and cozy cathedrals. And what Cromwell says is they're no good standing there. Let's melt them and put them back into circulation. Some of us this morning need to be melted and put back into circulation. Some of us are taking up space here in the church, not doing anything whether for the ministry of this church or the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of these four walls. And as a result of that, what God wants to do is he wants to do what he's doing in the life of Elijah, and that is melt down his saints so that they can be put back into circulation, so they can be put out for good use. But how does he do that? We're going to notice here as we look at the text this morning. So let us look at uh, 1 Kings 17, and I'm going to read verses 7 uh, through 16. I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word as we look at our text this morning. It tells us, Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me and from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away 
and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we are brought front and center to your word once again. Father, challenge us today by your word. Father, I pray that our hearts would be attentive to what your word has to say to us and that we could take some application and some truth from this life of this incredible man and use it in our lives. Father, that we would be the Elijahs in our world. Father, I pray that if there are widows in our land that need encouragement, Lord, that we would encourage them and love them. Father, that we would never be too proud to take help from those that are even less fortunate than us when they're called by you. What great truths of this story, Lord. What wonderful truths that we can apply. So, Father, I pray that we would open our hearts and minds to it now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. From a glance, you may say, we've been there and done that. Elijah needs to go. God tells him to go to a different place than where he's at right now. And he's hungry and he's in need of food and water and God will supply it. And you'll say, okay, Tim, we did that last week and we heard how God took care of it. But God has some truths for us in regards to this new chapter in our prophet's uh, life and his ordeal. And so what I want to do is give you a bit of a running commentary for my first couple parts, and then I want to put the focus of the message on my last point that it draws out some applications of how we can learn from this passage of Scripture. And so let's look at the first one this morning. God wants to forge the faith of his people, including Elijah and us today, and he does it, first of all, by having God place before us fresh paths of obedience. There's a new path of obedience that Elijah is called to. And notice in verses 8 and 9 what takes place. It says, The word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. One thing I want you to understand and know right from the beginning is that we find Elijah in the middle of a trial. And one of the first questions we have when a trial comes is, where are you, God? Have you forgotten me? Have you uh, forgotten that I am your servant and that I need your help? And what we need to understand is, is in the middle of nowhere where Elijah's at, before we even get to an outline, we must remember that God is, is so well acquainted with where Elijah's at and what is the struggle in Elijah's life. And we need to understand that and recognize that because some of us are struggling right now through a trial and we're wondering if God's forgotten us. We're wondering if God has forgotten our need. And, and, and many times we'll say, God, I just want to keep reminding you, don't, don't forget about me here. I, I need this help in this particular area. And God goes right to Elijah and he says, I haven't forgotten you. Yes, there may have been a season of solitude in your life, a season where I haven't spoken into your life, but at the right time and in the right place, God directs and he gives words of encouragement and affirmation in his commands that are of great importance. Now notice within this idea that once God identifies that he knows where he's at and he knows what he needs, there's a command that is given. Write that in your outlines, that there is a fresh command. Now notice he is told to go at once. Some translations say, arise and go. The idea here is don't dilly-dally. Get moving. 
There are many times in our Christian life where we are called to move and we have concrete shoes. We don't move as quickly as we need to. And then the times that we need to uh, move, uh, uh, um, let's see here, as we move quickly, uh, there are times where we find ourselves not moving quick enough. And as a result of that, we need to be careful. It's amazing how our children are that way. We tell them, hey, we got to get going, got to get going. And they just sit there and I'll, I'll get moving and I'll, I'll, I'll get there eventually. And there are times where they're moving and we just want them to slow down. And they're always at the wrong times. God tells Elijah, you need to get moving. Go at once to this place I've called you to. Now, the reason why I believe is there a dire situation at Kareth. I don't think as soon as the brook dried up that God says, all right, let's move you over to this place. I think that Elijah probably was doing some sweating, probably wondering, well, God, what are you going to do now? I've been here, and the brook has dried up. There's nothing left for me. I'm going to die out here. And God says, all right, you need to get moving. The word of the Lord has come, and he tells them, it is time to go. We need to be careful not to move too slowly, but we also, when God says move quickly, we need to go. Notice the challenge that comes. There's a challenge that comes in this. He's asked to go to a place called Zarephath. It means the melting place. There's much more of a challenge than just heading to Kareth. Kareth, he is called. He's not wanted at that point in his ministry. He's going to a secluded place. He's still in the nation of Israel. And so there's not many challenges. And it's amazing how gracious God is in our lives when he allows us to start with something small. And then as we mature and as we grow and as he shows his faithfulness, he calls us to even greater trials and greater aspects of ministry. And that's what he's doing with Elijah. The, the, the traveling to Kareth wouldn't have been a big issue. A short trip. He knew where he was going. It was it, kind of in the back uh, woods of his home, to, home area of Gilead. But now he's being called to a completely different place. Zarephath of Sidon. Now a couple challenges. In fact, there are four that I want you to write down in your outline somewhere there. First of all, the first challenge is that it would be a hundred mile journey... We've got to remember, there's no cars, there's no trains. Probably he's just doing this uh, on foot. And where he's going to go is he's going to head to modern-day Lebanon on the Mediterranean coast. Now, he's going to go, and this would be no easy journey. Remember, at this point, the drought is in full steam, and that Elijah, the Scriptures tell us in uh, 1 Kings 18, that Ahab and Jezebel had gone out to all the neighboring nations looking for the troubler of Israel. In fact, they were relieving the land of prophets of Yahweh, of Jehovah. And so Elijah is probably the most wanted man. And what God is telling him to do is to say, all right, what I want you to do is I want you to get up from your place of seclusion where nobody knows where you're at, and I want you to walk 100 miles, a challenge in and of itself, but I want you to do it knowing that everyone is looking for you. It's not just Ahab, but think of the stories that must have been coming out from the kingdom of Ahab as word got out that this man, this prophet of God, had come and he said it would not rain. If that guy came anywhere near my farm that was dying and all the crops were falling apart, you better believe I'm going to be looking for this Elijah. And God calls him from Kareth to this place called Zarephath, and he would be challenged every step of the way, the stress that must have been in Elijah's heart while he, in essence, was a wanted man. Number two, 
What Elijah would come to recognize and realize is the devastation that had come upon the region because of Israel's sin and Elijah's proclamation. Think about that for a moment. For over a year now, there's been no rain and no dew. It has to, you have to believe that the world was, uh, in many ways in that region, coming to its end. The despair and, and the death that must have been looming over this area. And, and Elijah, again, a man like us, with the passions and feelings of us, had to feel like, was this all worth it? Was it all necessary? I mean, people lo- probably looked miserable, and the struggles that must have been going on must have been a great challenge for Elijah to go. Remember, he had been by himself, and so he had not had any involvement with the outside world. He knew that the famine was severe because the brook had dried up, but he had not been a part of any of the issues surrounding it. And Elijah was now going to be brought from a place of solitude to a place where he was going to see the effects of the famine that he had proclaimed. Number three, he would head into the hub of Baal worship. In fact, he would head to Zarephath of Sidon. Now, that doesn't really make much of a, uh, of a splash with us unless we are reminded of 1 Kings 16.31. Notice what is articulated there in 1 Kings 16.31. Speaking of King Ahab, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of of the Sidonians. Where is he going? He's going to Sidon. Where is that? That's the home turf of Queen Jezebel. The woman that wants him dead, he is to go to her turf. This is much different than being in Israel. He's going to a foreign land. He's going to the birthplace. He is going to the hub of all Baal worship. He is going to be the prophet of God in a foreign and enemy land. This is much different than Kareth. And he is upping the ante, God is, in bringing about the challenges in Elijah's life. Now remember, he's probably taking at least a five to seven day journey to get here and the thoughts and the feelings that must have been going on in his heart and mind about this message that the Lord had given. There's one more challenge that I want to bring out, and that is that he would be commanded to go to Zarephath where he would get help from a widow. Now, the NIV omits an important Hebrew participle in word in verse uh, 9. In the King James and some of the more literal translations, the word behold is there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to feed you. The word there, behold, literally is, is our word tada. What God is saying is, all right, I want you to go to Zarephath of Sidon, and tada, a widow is going to feed you there. Like God's got this sense of humor. You prophet, you important guy, I'm going to use the lowest of low to take care of your needs. I don't know about you, but that was, it would be a challenge for me. Hey, Tim, uh, I know you're struggling, and Tim, I know you need help. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to find a poor old widow who's going to help you in your time of need. Elijah's got some challenges. Isn't it with trials that challenges come? And every trial is different than another. The Kareth trial was difficult, but God is now going to graduate him from that first phase of trials, and he's going to give him a greater challenge before it. And so he's traveling to Zarephath of Sidon with all these challenges before him. But notice, there's some comfort. 
As God gives challenges, he inevitably always gives comfort. And the comfort is found in verse 10. Notice what he says. He says, so he went to Zarephath. There's obedience. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was gathering sticks. He called to her and said, and we'll get to that in a moment. What comfort must have come when Elijah gets to Zarephath and he gets there uh, fully protected? A wanted man, knowing that everybody was probably looking for him, trying to end this uh, famine that was taking place. And so he gets to Zarephath, and he must have said, Woo, I made it. I'm there. And then the joy that must have filled his heart when he sees that widow there gathering sticks. Just as God said there would be. Just as he had promised. Just as he had said. What great comfort is it when we are obedient to what God says. And even though there may be trials and difficult circumstances that come. It is wonderful to know that what God has promised comes true. It is the greatest feeling of knowing you are in the will of God. Now there's a couple things that should be brought to comfort. That would bring comfort to Elijah. First of all, positively, that God had been faithful in regards to his word, to all that Elijah needed. God says, I want you to go to Zarephath. I've got a widow that's going to be there, and she's going to take care of you. And when he arrives in Zarephath, he could say, God is utterly faithful in his words. But notice there's a second aspect, and it's more negative, and that is that as Elijah walked those hundred miles, he inevitably would have seen that God is faithful in his judgments and his punishment of sin. And I think that's important because many times we go through trials and struggles, and sometimes we have trials and struggles that we live vicariously through the lives of other people. Maybe it's a child, maybe it's a brother or a sister that's going through some difficulties, maybe it's a friend or a neighbor, and we've seen them make decisions that go against God and his word. And as a result of that, God is proving himself faithful. And so when we see sinful decisions that bring forth uh, issues of uh, consequence that are negative in our lives, we can look and we can say, while we don't like seeing people go through those, that God is faithful. And it's a reminder for us to be careful not to walk into sin. Some of the greatest reminders God gives us is to show us that the world and how it lives is utterly futile in its living and walking in life. And that we see the issues and the consequences that come, we are reminded that God cannot be mocked and a man reaps what he sows. And so Elijah's being taught up. He's he's growing in this seminary on his way to Sidon in the positive knowing God is faithful and being reminded that God is faithful not just in the good, but also in dealing with sin and man's disobedience. So he gets to Zarephath. He's there. He's obeyed. Let's notice what happens next. We see God's faithful promises amid new obstacles. What's God going to do? It seems like some of the same. Instead of, instead of having ravens feed bread and water from a brook, he's going to get it from a, a widow. That, that seems just like the same old story, just different scenario taking place. And yet, amidst these faithful promises that God gives, he articulates some new issues. There's some new obstacles. Elijah now is not going to be by himself, but he's going to be with a family. 
a widow, and she's going to learn that she has a son. And we're going to learn that not only will trials come to Elijah, that he's hungry and in need of water, but that now we're going to have a widow who's hungry and need of food and water. And then as a result of that, we're going to learn next week that a medical crisis comes, and Elijah, who needs to take care of himself, now finds himself in a home that has even greater needs than he does as an individual. So notice what Elijah says. He comes into the gate at Zarephath, and when he gets to the gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her. I don't know how, and just as a way of commentary, I don't know how he knows who it is, how he knows that she's the one. Maybe she had a a widow clothes on. I don't know if that was something. Maybe a light or a star had led him there. We, We don't know. But he knows who it is in some way. And he says to her, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? What comfort must have come when she says, okay, I'll go get it. He's like, yeah, God, we're we're right on. This is great. I follow what you say and you lead me right there. There's nothing better than our GPSs on our phones and in our our, uh, cars. It's amazing that right when you think that you've got it beat and you know where it's at, it gets you right where you need to be. It says, hey, in a thousand feet you're going to go there and by golly, in a thousand feet that little street that you were looking for is there. That's what Elijah must have been feeling. Hey, can you get me some water? And she says, okay, I'll be right back. And he's like, this is wonderful. And of course, 100-mile journey, we don't know if he got any food or water during that 100-mile journey, but he says, while you're getting some water, would you bring me something to eat? That doesn't sound like a bad thing. Isn't that what God had told him was going to take, take place? A widow's going to be there, and she is going to supply him. And so he is basing his understanding uh, on uh, receiving food and drink uh, from the widow. But notice what happens. There's doubt in the widow's mind. This obstacle brings doubt. Now, we aren't sure how Elijah knew who the widow was. And lie as well, we don't know how the widow knew that she was to take care of Elijah. There's nowhere in the text. It says that the word uh, commanded, I have commanded a widow there to supply you with food, to feed you. Does that mean that the widow heard an audible voice from God? It can mean that, or it can simply mean that God had designated her without her knowing. So we don't know if she knew or not, you know, there's going to be a man named Elijah who's going to show up, and he's going to ask you these things and say yes. It seems more likely that uh, God had been working in her life and had moved her through his sovereignty to bring her to a place to uh, help him out in his time of need. No matter how we take it, we need to recognize that this woman knows she plays a part. But notice in verse 11, the text tells us that she's gathering sticks. He calls to her, give me a drink. Okay, no problem. Then he says, give me a piece of bread. She gets undone. As surely as the Lord, your God lives. This gives us some understanding that she recognized that he was an Israelite. You say, how would he recognize that? Well, he probably didn't speak exactly the same language. They had common vernacular back in that day. He was from Israel, and there's no question that the dress may have been different. Elijah was able to be seen as an Israelite, and it probably, because of the famine and because of Ahab sending people out in the land, that the prophet Elijah was a prophet of Yahweh. 
And so people understood that the reason why the famine was there was because of this, in their mind, this territorial god named Yahweh who had taken away the rain. And so she becomes undone. She swears by his foreign god, I've got an obstacle. Here's the thing. This guy has come. He asked for a drink. No big deal. I can get you a drink. But now you want a happy meal? I don't got it. You got to be kidding me. I'm gathering sticks. I don't have any fuel for the fire, and I got to gather sticks. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to take these sticks, and me and my son are going to have our last meal, and we're going to die. What might Elijah have been thinking at that point? God, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You said that she was going to supply for me. Something's not right. And this is where a small trial helps us in a greater trial. The moment that she says, hey, I, I've only got a little bread and a little, oil, or a little uh, grain and a little oil left in the bowl and in the jar, well, what do you want me to do? She's really struggling. Notice what he does. He says, all right, you don't have it. Notice what he says. He says, don't be afraid in verse 13. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me and for, uh, from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for you and your son. It comes across as one of the harshest requests of anything in the scriptures. Poor lady, she's gathering sticks to make her last meal. And like a typical man, Elijah says, hey, before you sit down and eat, would you bring me something? Elijah's got something up his sleeve. Elijah recognizes that in a world of need, that just like God had provided at Kareth, that God would provide here. How did Elijah know that? Because Elijah had come to know the faithfulness of God's word. And as a result of that, he knew that if God was faithful, that when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Some of us here in this church today need to recognize that when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Some of us have thought that God has fallen off his throne because the world seems to be in utter chaos. But when God says, I rule every day, I rule over every throne, I rule over every injustice and every piece of calamity that our world faces, that we need to recognize that when God says it, he means it. And when God says, I'll deal with it, then he'll deal with it. Elijah is reminded that God is faithful. And as a result of God's faithfulness, He's confident. He's confident in his God taking care of his needs. And so notice what he does. He demands something. There's a demand by the prophet, make me a meal. But in his demand, there is some encouragement. Write that somewhere next to that. There's a level of encouragement. He says, do not fear. It doesn't say, but I wonder if he put his arm around that woman. He said, don't be afraid. I know you're hungry. I know you're scared. But don't be afraid. Notice the next thing he does, he enlightens her. He doesn't just give her these pleasant platitudes as he pats her on the back, but he tells her why she doesn't need to fear. See, a lot of times in our counsel to our friends and to our family, we're more than happy to say don't fear or, or don't be worried and, or don't, don't lose heart, and we don't ever give the reason why a person doesn't need to lose uh, heart he enlightens her. He says, God's going to take care of you. Notice what he says in the text. He says, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Uh, uh, let's see here. Verse 14. 
the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord God gives a rain on the land. He enlightens her. He says, God's going to take care of you. God's going to meet your needs. I know you don't see it right now, but God's going to do it. How could he say that? How could he say that to someone who was in such dire straits? He could say it because he was there. And some of us need to recognize that the reason why we go through trials and tribulation is because God wants to, at some point in the future, allow us to be of comfort to those who go into trials and tribulation. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says the reason why we endure trials of all kinds is so that when others go through those same trials, we might be of comfort to them. My parents will tell you over and over again the reason why uh, their firstborn son was taken at the age of 16 wasn't to bring them down, wasn't to hurt them, but was so that my parents, who now are in the ministry, would be able to comfort people when the greatest tragedy comes. And that they would be able to say, yeah, I don't get why God did that either. We've been wondering that same thing ever since our boy was taken. But that they would be able to say that God is faithful, that his grace is sufficient. Elijah reminds her, and he says, God's going to take care of you. And the reason why I know that is because he's taking care of me. If you don't know this, this is the greatest form of evangelism that we can live out. I have hope. Why do you have hope? Because Jesus Christ has changed my life. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you how he has ministered to me in my hour of need. Do you know that that's an apologetic that no one's going to be able to argue? They may be able to say, well, that works for you, but I'm not sure about me. But they're not going to be able to dispute that. They're not going to be able to fight that. They're going to have to accept it from you. It's an experience that you've had and that has changed your life. Notice the expectation the jar and jug will not go empty. He says, just watch. He says, I've seen it. God used birds the last time. I don't know how he's going to do it this time, but God's going to do it, and it's going to be awesome. Now, notice a couple of things about a part of this uh, element in this demand that is given. That Elijah, write this somewhere again in your outline, that Elijah counsels when he himself is in need. Boy, your pastor needs to learn this. There are times where I come in and I say, I just hope people will encourage me. I just hope people will, will affirm me. I just hope that people will, will take care of me. I'm a busy guy. I'm doing a lot of ministry. And, and a lot of times in ministry, we can come that way. I just keep giving and giving. When are people going to pour into me? Elijah's tired. He's weary. He's walked for 100 miles. No food, no water for him anywhere to be found. He's told that this woman's going to take care of him. And he gets there, and he has to be the one to do the counseling. That just seems backwards. And yet that's exactly how God calls us to counsel our friends and our loved ones. He says, you're going to think you're going to be taken care of, and you're going to do some serving. Notice the next thing in regards to that is that many times when we come expecting to be provided for, we are the ones who do the providing. Some of you right now are at wit's end. You are the ones who are gathering your sticks and making your final meal. Maybe it's the last mortgage payment. Maybe it's the last time you're going to be able to cover that bill. And you're sitting there and you come into church. You say, when is someone going to provide for me? I will say this in all sincerity and love. God may be calling you in your extreme poverty to give out of service to your God. You say, well, where do you come up with that? 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. The Macedonians, out of their extreme poverty, with joy in their heart, gave out of the abundance of what they did not have. 
Sometimes in our worst calamities and trials, God is calling us to the greatest amount of ministry we would have ever been a part of. Notice there's a decision that is made. Notice the decision that has to be made. The widow can take Elijah on her word and be blessed, or she could doubt and turn him away. If we just look at that text in verse 15, and we just read it and don't think about the implication of of what is going on, then we would miss out on the huge step of faith. Think about this for a moment. A man comes to your house. He's a foreigner. Think about this tonight, today as you're sitting at home. A knock comes at the door and there's this guy there and he doesn't look very good, kind of leathery looking and looks like he's been traveling for a while. You've seen those guys on the side of the road as they're traveling. And he comes and, and he knocks at the door and he says, hey, God says that I'm supposed to come here and you're supposed to feed me. Supposed to give me some water and, and, and some food. God's told me to do this. I'm going to bet that 99% of us would shut the door. Am I right? Most likely. You know, hey, you know, is this a widow? This is a helpless widow. And this guy, Elijah, comes in and he knocks on the door and says, you're going to feed me, you're going to take care of me. And, and, and it's one thing to, to hand the guy a canned food out of your pantry, but it's the last of the food you have. And he says, hey, before you make your dinner, I know this is your last dinner, but before you make that, why don't you feed me something? Notice the faith of the woman. Notice verse 15. She says, it says, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. Wow. A woman from another land. Nowhere does it say she's a follower of Yahweh's or anything like that. And she takes God at his word. She takes Elijah at his word. And she does exactly as she is supposed to. Understand this. When you take steps of faith like that, God is going to honor them. And notice what comes. Notice what comes as a result of this incredible decision of faith. It comes in, we see it in God's fabulous provisions That was anything but ordinary. What happens in verse 16? She says, yes. She does exactly what Elijah says. She goes and gets some water. She goes and makes him a cake of of bread. And notice what verse 16 says. Wow. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Notice there's some ordinary facets to this incredible miracle. First of all, it's not manna from heaven. No birds are bringing it. Every time she went to the jar and to the jug, there was something there. And it seems in some ways there's a bit of ordinary nature to this miracle. Some of us don't recognize that God's provision has been that your transmission has not fallen out of the bottom of your car. You haven't even thought about that. You haven't thought about that the reason why God, how God is providing is that he is taking care of things that you never would have thought about. A couple months ago, uh, things were, were pretty tight for us as a family, and we received a $175 reimbursement check from insurance a year and a half ago. That's the jug not running dry. And you say, well, that's, no, that's, not, that's not really a miracle. I mean, miracles are big things. Miracles don't have blue cross and blue shield written all over them. That's the last place you would think that there would be a miracle coming from. But sometimes we need to recognize that God uses the ordinary to bless us in extraordinary ways. 
And so this woman goes to the cupboard, and every time she goes to the cupboard, there's just enough. It's not overflowing. This isn't the 12 disciples and, and them handing out the food and coming back with baskets. Here, Jesus, we got all this left over. It's none of that. There's just enough. Just what Rachel Ray and Paula Dean says goes in the recipe is there, and it's just enough. And so she goes back day in and day out. I want you to think about just a couple things. There's nothing to exegete about this. But think about the reminder of God's grace in this miracle. Every prayer time. Can you imagine what that woman must have been doing during prayer time? When we talk about grace, let's give thanks and let's say grace. It takes on a whole new element when we look and understand the dilemmas that are going on in this family's life. Every meal. Can you just imagine what the prayers must have been like? Lord, I don't know how you did it. I saw the bottom of the jug when I finished last night, and I come in this morning, and my goodness, there's just enough again. I wonder if she was singing, Great is thy faithfulness. I wonder if the doxology began as she's just sitting there and she's mixing up the flour and, and the jug of oil and then praise God from whom all blessings flow. And Elijah's sitting there, that's my God. He's faithful. He takes care of us. Brothers and sisters, don't ever forget God's grace in the ordinary. Don't ever forget God's grace in your job. Don't ever forget God's grace in the gift of a spouse and children. Don't ever forget God's grace in the things that come that seem ordinary and get it shows God's faithfulness. Notice the greatness of God. God takes care of this without anybody seeing it. God takes care of it without bringing any kind of fanfare to it. This is how great God is. This is how great our God is. Every time... His power is seen over our circumstances. Every day, every morning, lunch, and dinner, they would see the power, the supernatural power of God to take that which there was none of and make enough for us in our day. Some of us have forgotten how great God is. That we woke up this morning and the world wasn't annihilated. We woke up this morning, and I know it was in my notes, but God didn't follow through with me on this. I was going to say the sun rose again. We can't even tell if the sun's out today. But you know what? The sun got, got up. We got up. What woke us from our slumber? What kept our heart beating? Have you ever thought about, uh, our, we go to sleep, we shut down. Who's making sure we're still living? Who's making sure we're breathing? Who's keeping track of the children? God. The greatness of God, and he's doing this while he's sustaining the world in just the right spot, a hair to the left and will freeze, a hair to the right and will burn up. Who's doing that? God. The same God that holds the universe in place is the God who fed that widow, her son, and Elijah when there was no food in the land. Why then are we reminded as of God's greatness? We're reminded then to give God glory. Notice what the text says. All of this was done in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Should Elijah get the, uh, the praise and the renown? No. His God. Because he articulates, and we need to remember that. Some of us begin to think, look at the life I have. Look at all that I've done. Look at all the great things that are going on for me. What glory I should receive. 
There's a book called uh, Cat and Dog Theology. And uh, with a, a, a dog, a dog will say his theology is you feed me, you take care of me, you play with me, you must be God. Cat theology is you feed me, you take care of me, you, you play with me, I must be God. A lot of us are cats here in this place. There needs to be a lot more dog theology in our world that we recognize that God, without your hand in my life, I would be nothing. Apart from me, God, I've got, I don't have a prayer. And so I give you all the glory, all the praise. And that's what must have been going on in that house. And so now let's apply it. I see in point number four, God's forging principles that we must own as Christ followers. We've understood this text. We've seen some of the things that have come out of it. Now, what are we to do with it? What can we learn? This is where it's important. Number one, God's leading is often surprising. Don't analyze it. When God tells you to do something, don't sit there and try to figure it out. If we would have been told to go to Zarephath of Sidon, we could have come up with all kinds of reasons on why we shouldn't have gone, but God's word was clear. Go. And some of us want to analyze why God says for us to do something. Now I understand why God is called the Father. Because he has children that are always wanting to analyze his commands. Go feed the dog. Noah says, why? Because he'll die. That's why. Go do this. Why? Because you have to have clothes for school. That's why you got to do, help do the laundry. Why, why, why? And, and we do that. God says, hey, I want you to go and be a part of this ministry. Why? Because kids need to learn about the Lord. God says, hey, I want you to go and I want you to share your faith with the neighbor. Why? Because that person won't hear unless they have someone who preaches to them. We've got to stop asking why. We've got to stop analyzing and ask God the question, if God, you have clearly commanded it, then my job is to go at once, just as Elijah did. Elijah had no reason to leave Kareth, to only go to a greater trial. And yet it says that he did not analyze it, but he went at once. Number two, God's promises often hinge on action, so get going. Some of us are not seeing God's blessing in our life because we have not taken that step of faith. We haven't moved. I want you to understand that in the two places um, where major steps of faith were given by God's people, the Israelites, uh, at the River Jordan, they had to step out into the Jordan River at flood stage, the Bible says, before the waters would be parted. Think about that, how if you were that first row of priests that were walking in, Joshua says, all right, God says he's going to figure this out. We've got to cross this place, and you're the first guy going in. And the water's at flood stage, and it's flying, you know, from one side to the next, and your feet get in there and go, okay, when's this guy going to say, hey, hey, I was just kidding around. Get back in here. Everybody out of the pool. Sometimes we have to get our feet wet before God will allow his promises to be unleashed. Elijah's going to go, and he would have never been taken care of at Zarephath until he went there. The widow would have never gotten her food if she wouldn't have done what Elijah had called her to. Some of us right now are missing out on God's blessing and his promises because we're just sitting and we're saying, well, God, I'll go when you take care of everything. That's not a life of faith. God says, go and be a part of it. Number three, God is not just concerned with you. 
reflect this affection to the nations. I want you to turn out of Luke for out of uh, First Kings to the Gospel of Luke for a moment, for one moment. Luke chapter four. Some of you, this may be a surprise if you've not done a careful study of Luke, that Jesus talks about this very passage of Scripture. And in it, he reminds us of the need for evangelism. Notice what he says in Luke chapter 4, the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, verse 25. Luke four twenty-five. Notice what Jesus says. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. There were many widows, he says, in Elijah's hometown when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Notice what Jesus says. Yet Elijah was not sent to any one of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Understand this, that God isn't just concerned with our issues here. Yes, we're going through an economic struggle and recession here in the United States. But that is the last thing. The last thing we need to be thinking about is how to take care of ourselves. But that God may be calling us to far-flung reaches of the world to reach them in our time of struggle, in our time of pain. We aren't just called to the people of the United States of America, but the reason why we go and send out now, it looks like we'll be sending out dozens of you out to go do ministry in far-off places is because God is calling those not just to serve here in our hometown, but to serve the uttermost parts of the world and recognize that God just isn't concerned about Elijah. He's not just concerned about us, but that there's a widow. There's someone in a far-off place that needs God's help. He needs, they need his supply in their hour of need. Reflect that affection. When we have trials in our lives, many times we forget about others. It is the last thing that we should be doing. We should be remembering those around us who need our help and who need the gospel. Number four, I've got two more and I'll close. Remember, God takes the little we have and adds to it. He takes the little that we have and he adds to it. You don't have to have everything. Who needs faith if you have everything? But God says, I want you to just take a little. I remember the song that we used to sing in, um, in uh, children's worship as a kid. This little light of mine, I want to let it shine. What's this little light? We used to hold this little as if this was a little light and it made us laugh and we thought it was great. This little light, what's this little light going to do? It will do great things in the hands of the master. What will this little faith that I have, what will this little ministry have, what will it do? If you do it by yourself, it won't have much. But if you give it to God, just as that little amount of meal went on and on to take care of many dinners, lunches, and breakfasts, so that little amount of faith, that little bit amount of money, that little bit amount of ministry can be used by God to take over the world. Twelve little disciples. Not much to give, not very wealthy at all, just traveling and sharing the gospel. And God would take that little faith and allow it to grow. And we're here as a result of 12 men's faith because they had been used by their master. Finally, God's provisions are always just enough. Appreciate them. When was the last time you said, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this meal. Lord, thank you for the health that I have. Lord, thank you for meeting my needs. I wonder if there was some temptation 
for the widow and the, and the prophet and uh, the child to say, you know what, bread and water again? And the widow says, no, it's not bread and water this time, it's water and bread. We sometimes get bored with just having enough. And I want us to recognize and appreciate that. You know, I don't know if you know this, I'm sure most of you do, that, uh, that, that the church has, has, uh, has struggled financially. And you know, when I say we've struggled financially, I almost get mad at myself in light of this passage because this is what I know. God's provisions are just enough. And we have a lot of ideas and a lot of thoughts of what we could be doing with more money and we've budgeted for things and yet we fail sometimes to appreciate that every day that this church has been open, God has provided exactly what is needed to get the job done. And can we say to him in one voice, thank you? Thank you, God. You've met us. And you're going to meet us tomorrow. And you're going to meet us the day after until your job of meeting us is done. And he says that day will be done when we see him in glory. Don't ever forget to appreciate it. I wish I could tell you that after this everything gets rosy. It only gets worse. So come back next week for some more good news. This story doesn't get much better. In fact, it just keeps getting more and more difficult. But isn't that how God sometimes does things? He gives us trial after trial so he can show how faithful and how great he is. Don't forget that this week. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, it's easy to look at this message and, and say, but Lord, you don't know what my situation is. Lord, you don't know how bad I'm feeling right now. You don't know the despair I have. Father, I pray for whoever may be out here, wherever they may be, that you would allow them to see your grace. Father, if it's because of their disbelief, it's because of their unwillingness to look, Lord, you would open their eyes to it. Lord, that they would see it. That they would see it in those ordinary things. That they would see it in the things that aren't falling apart that they would see it in the miracles that, that go by each and every day without us knowing. Lord, that you would encourage the hearts of your people so that they will be able in their times of greatest struggle and circumstance to be able to praise and honor you.